0: What does a religious person act like? (laughs) Perhaps that word religious stirs up negative ideas uh, in your head. A religious person is a sort of holier-than-thou figure, an aloof person, a judgmental person, a harsh person. Or perhaps that word religious gives you the idea of someone who's devoted, uh, pious, kind, dedicated to doing good. The word religion or religious... It's actually only used seven times in the Bible. And only three times is it actually to do with Christianity. And all those three times are in one book, the book of James. Religion there tends to be uh, what other people, uh, how you treat other people. But religion elsewhere in the Bible tends to be what other people have. Others have religion, Christians have Jesus. And yet, it's there. This idea in James, that whilst we say as Christians we don't have a religion, actually we sort of do. Those looking on at us sort of see things in that way, don't they? Christianity is taught as part of religious studies. When asked on the census form what your religion is, we put Christianity, or Jedi, if we're feeling particularly rebellious. But there are expectations of behaviour as well, aren't they, for us? I was recently told that I don't dress smartly enough to be a minister of religion, uh, genuinely. (laughs) Um, But religion is viewed in a particular way, isn't it, in our society? And it's not always a helpful one, is it? Well, the opening section of our passage this morning begins with three commands that deal with religion of the day. God's people were coming out of a culture that had a religion, that had religious people... But being religious looked very different to what we would think of, even in the bad ideas that we have. Egypt's religious life was run by magicians and sorcerers, as well as by priests. They were steeped in the dark arts. So think of the magicians that opposed Moses. Those were people who helped lead the nation. They sacrificed to many, many, many gods. So for them, religion was about getting the right gods They had, It's reckoned in Egypt over 1,400 different gods. And many of them were sort of hybrids between people and animals. And they worshipped them often by engaging in relations, in carnal relations, with those animals. Rams, goats, even crocodiles. Don't Google it. But the same was true in Canaan, where the Israelites were going. If you think about it, they too were run by priests and sorcerers. They involved many different gods and it often involved unhealthy relationships with animals such as bulls or with shrine prostitutes. That's what religion looked like in the days that these commandments were given. And that was what was expected of a holy or religious person. The more religious, the more gods you might worship or the more extreme your practices. That was the norm for worship in the Israelites' days. And in one sense, it's little wonder that when we uh, leave the Israelites alone in a few chapters of time, while Moses is up in the mountain, they end up worshipping a calf of gold engaged in illicit relationships with each other. Because actually that was what religion looked like in those days, in their world. That's not to excuse what they're doing, but it makes what they're doing a bit more understandable. But God here in the first commandments here that he gives from verses 18 to 20 shows us that they're to have nothing to do with that kind of religion. They're to be a million miles away from what this is about. So there are no sorceresses or sorcerers that are to be allowed to live. A sorceress there is a whisperer of charms. Literally it comes from the idea of whispering. They were enticers of the people. Jezebels, witches of Endor they're both described as, uh, as sorceresses and they are not to have anything to do with them they're also to have no illicit relationship with animals it's repeated in Leviticus along with forbidden relationships but it seems here it's to do with the link with pagan religion it's basically saying don't do the religious practices that they do as though you needed more reasons not to do that and they're also not to offer to sacrifices to any other gods in verse 20. Not to Ra, not to Set, not to Baal. And all of these were so serious that they carried the death penalty. This was not how God wanted his people to worship. This was not true religion, true worship. And God needed to spell out for his people what true religion, what true worship looked like. And helpfully, is also the view of the New Testament. James, the brother of Jesus, writes this in James 1. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, will be blessed in his doing. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That is James' understanding of true religion, true worship of God. And it's the same understanding we find here. Compassion to the needy, keeping unstained from the world around us. And showing no impartiality with regard to persons. Now this section in Exodus is a sort of sandwich, with the edges of the crust being not to oppress the sojourner or sojourner. And it shows us that what's in the middle is the really important bit. We're going to deal with that last. But firstly, you see, true religion involves compassion. Our worship of God involves compassion. Have a look at verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, sojourner is not a word that we use very often. We can't even decide how to pronounce it, can we, uh, between us? Alien is another word that we use, but that's very differently understood in our society, isn't it? If we start talking about aliens in the Bible. But the idea is someone here who comes from another country and stays in a country that is not their country of origin. In other words, an immigrant, a foreigner in your land. Now, I imagine there'll be a variety of opinions on immigration in this room, and that's okay. It really is. I don't think the Bible gives us guidance as to what national immigration levels we should aim for. It's a democracy, and it's up for each nation to decide for themselves. Equally, we are not the nation of Israel, as we said last week. The UK is not God's people. This is not so much about making national policy as to what we do as individuals and as churches. If we make this all about national policy, then we've missed the point. What it's saying is that we as Christians, the church, God's people, we are not to oppress these people or to wrong them. And really it poses us the question, how do we treat people from other countries? How do we react when we hear people speaking in another language. We know, don't we, that there can be variety of, uh, of reactions, can't we? We can't always react in the right way. But we're not to wrong people who come and stay in our country. We're to treat them with compassion. We're to be compassionate to the sojourner. We're also to be compassionate to the widow and the fatherless. Have a look at verses 22 to 24. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child... If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your fathers shall become widows, and your children fatherless. God here tells them not to mistreat the widow or the fatherless, the bereaved or the orphan. In that society, they were the ones who had no protection. They were vulnerable and liable to be taken advantage of. And the word mistreat there carries the idea of lowering, of sort of abasing, of crushing. So we find it in Exodus uh, 1 verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. The idea of weighing them down, of crushing them, to lay them low, to humble them. That is not how we're to treat the vulnerable in our society. Using them rather than helping them. And if you think this belongs to another age, think of some of the horrors of the care system. Some of the stories that we read in the newspapers where children are used by families who are supposed to protect them. Think of the scams that are pulled on elderly women who end up giving away their life savings because somebody rang them on the phone and told them that they needed them. We read about these things every week, don't we? How we treat the vulnerable says a lot about who we are as a people and as a society. But it also says a lot about us as individuals, how we treat the vulnerable ourselves. Do we help those who are vulnerable? How do we respond to those who need extra care, who need that extra time from us? Do we offer it or do we avoid them? And God is very serious about this, isn't he? He promises to avenge them. He is a father to the fatherless, a husband to the widow. He will not allow them to be treated with less worth than everyone else. He will not allow them to be written off as inconvenient. So we're to show compassion to the widow uh, and the orphan. Finally in this section, we're to show compassion to the poor. Have a look at verses 25 to 27. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbour's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else is he to sleep? If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Just as we're not to take advantage of the immigrant or the vulnerable, we're not to take advantage of the poor. Verse 25 seems to have in mind a sort of loan shark mentality, a sort of wander in the wilderness, uh, lending people money at high interest. Those who are desperate will often accept any terms that they're given. And he's saying no. <laughs> We're not to be involved in taking advantage of someone's poverty. Verses 26 and 27 have to do with taking items as collateral for a loan. As strange as it sounds here, I think in our culture it would be the equivalent of insisting on taking someone's pyjamas or taking someone's bedsheet or mattress uh, in exchange for giving them a loan. And the point is, well, how how can they sleep without something to sleep in? How can they get by without the very basic things that they need? So those things were to be returned the same day. Again, it's the idea of dealing with people with compassion, as human beings with dignity, why? Because it tells us in verse 27, God himself is compassionate. He shows compassion, so his people are to do so too. Now, the word compassionate there is translated gracious in Exodus 34, when God proclaims his name uh, to Moses. He says, uh, The Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, And faithfulness. God's name, his nature, is to be compassionate, to be gracious. And that word literally means one who stoops down or bends down to someone. So far from laying others low, we should be bending down, stooping down to help those in need. Why? Because our heavenly father does. That's what God's character is. If we want to be godly, if we want to be holy, then we need to be acting as he acts, to have the same compassion that he does. So are we doing that? Are we bending down and helping the vulnerable, the poor, uh, the needy in our society? Because that's what true religion, true worship looks like in the first place. But that's not all true religion looks like. True religion also includes impartiality. Have a look at verses uh, 1 to 9. Actually, I'll just read 1 to 3 to start with. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with uh, the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. As you read through this section, you can begin to see how this fits with what we've read before. It might have a bit random to start with, like it was a sort of quick fire of laws. I know some have put this as uh, sections, various laws. It's always helpful, isn't it, when they do that with the, uh, the headings? But there's a pattern. It's still about how we treat others, especially the vulnerable. And it's saying that we're not to be partial in doing good or in administering justice. There is a real danger of being partial to some people and not to others. And again, these are the principles that lie behind the law that we're applying. So we're not to be partial, firstly, for or against the poor. We see that in verses 1 to 3, and also in 6 to 8. Let me read those to you. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Now these verses deal with court cases. And it's saying there's a real danger that in court cases you can be partial against the poor. Taking bribes, that's generally something that the rich do. They give bribes to try and get the, the law people on their own side and take their side against people who can't afford to do that. Surprisingly, in verse 3, it's also told that we're not to take side with the poor against the rich, ignoring the fact of the case. There was no, what you might call, positive discrimination here. Any discrimination was bad. Any partiality was to be avoided. Now, unless anybody here happens to be a judge, uh, or currently on jury duty, I think we're okay, um, you might think, well, how... These verses aren't really applicable, are they? We don't generally have a situation where we take bribes or do anything like that. But James comes to our rescue here in the New Testament. He picks this up and shows us how it applies to an everyday setting. So in James 2, he says this, "'My brothers, show no partiality "'as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, "'the Lord of glory. "'For if you see a man wearing a gold ring "'and fine clothing comes into your assembly,' And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You become a judge, says James, when you make distinctions between the rich and the poor and you treat them differently. The setting here is a church meeting. And he says what you can't do is give the best seats to the rich people, the sort of prime real estate. Now, in most churches, I reckon the prime real estate is actually the back. We have it sort of the other way round, don't we, Uh, from uh, the rest of the world. You know, in my church where I grew up, uh, the the oldest people sat at the back. And I'm convinced it's because they started at the front and they sort of worked their way back as they got older. It's like, we've got the seats now, we're not letting go. But uh, it's also because it's hardest to hear and hardest to see, but somehow they are their, their, their prime seats. I did once go to a church where I wasn't allowed to sit at the front. It was being filmed for television, and again, the problem of how I dress came up. This is becoming a bit of a theme, isn't it?
1: <laughs>
0: I hadn't thought of that until I said that out loud. But um, they only want the only one the smartly dressed people on the front row. Because it was going to be filmed, and they didn't want to give the impression that they'd just let you know anybody in.
1: <laughs> Me, for example. Yeah,
0: there we go. But seats is not so much our thing, I think. We don't really have the idea, do we, in the same way that they did in the ancient world. But how do we treat people who come into church? Do we treat them differently because of their socio economic status? Now we all want to say no, don't we? But class is still inbuilt into our system, into our minds in our country. And let's face it, as a church, we tend to be, dare I say it, a middle-class church with middle-class interests. Tends to be us. But then again, we are in a middle-class town. Ta- don't, don't say outside. But we are in a middle-class town, aren't we? Unless you live in Ilkley, uh, in, which case, in which case your servants might live in a middle-class town. <laughs> It would be weird in one sense, wouldn't it, if if our church was completely different to the area around it, if we were of a completely different status to the town around us. But that said, we need to make sure that we're not putting barriers in the way of people who might not be where most of us are. A church needs to be an inclusive place in the right sense of the word, where people who are different can feel included. You might say, well, we don't have any people like that that we need to do that for. But might that be actually part of the reason for that, that we don't think about those things? So how can we make sure as a church and as individuals that we're including all people, whatever their income or status? Because the gospel welcomes us, whatever our income or status. Something for us to think about. So we're not to be partial for or against the poor. We're also not to be partial against our enemies. Have a look at verses 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. This may was a surprise to you, but the idea of loving your enemy is not just a New Testament idea. It was a perversion of the law that Jesus was addressing when he talked about love your love your neighbour and hate your enemy. Hate your enemy is nowhere found in the Old Testament. In fact, it says here: if your enemy's ox is wandering off, bring it back. If that annoying person's donkey is overloaded, help it out. Help him out. And to quote that passage that we looked at last week: is, is it for the oxen? For God is that God is concerned. Does He not speak entirely for our sake? It's not there to treat as something about donkeys. It's there to teach us about something much broader. It shows that we're to deal fairly even with people that we don't like. Even with people who have hurt us. We are to love them. We are to seek to be those who don't harbour grudges. Who don't seek opportunities to harm others. We're to be those who love even our enemies. Now emotions and sentiments are tricky aren't they? And they take time. Especially when we've been hurt. But actions... We can do that right away, can't we? We can show love to neighbour. We're not even to be partial against those who have wronged us. And then finally in this section, we're not to be partial against the sojourner. In verse 9. You shall not oppress the sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You'll notice it returns to basically the same command that we had to start with. With similar motivations. He's saying, you know what it's like to be in another country. You know what it's like to have the heart of an immigrant, if you like. So don't mistreat them. Don't discriminate against them. We're not to be those who are partial against anybody. We are those to treat people fairly. That is part of true religion, true worship. But of course, true religion isn't just about our relationship with one another. It actually has to do with our relationship with God. So our final point. True religion consists of consecration to the Lord. Have a look at the central part of this passage. Verse 28 to 31. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen, with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. The three central commands here of this passage speak about our dedication to the Lord. They form the heart of the section and they form a sort of parallel to the unholy triad that we saw at the beginning. No cursing, as you might hire a sorcerer to do. Animals are to be dedicated to God, not slept with. You are to be consecrated to the Lord alone, not hedging your bets with other gods. There's more to this section, but that really shows you how it links together with what else we've seen. The first thing we see is that our tongue is to be set apart for God in verse 28. We're to use it not to curse or revile, but to bless. Again, if you go to the book of James, James has much to say about this, about not speaking evil of our brother, about blessing and cursing not coming from the same mouth. It matters how we speak about other people, our leaders, be they our national leaders or church leaders. In Acts 23, Paul quotes this about the high priests of the nation of Israel at the time. It matters about how we speak about those in authority, and it matters about how we speak about God. The word revile in this context probably means to speak lightly of, or to speak contemptibly of. Especially since, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, the mouth is the overflow of the heart. If our words revile God, it's because our hearts do. If we speak evil of other people, it's because it's in our hearts first. And our hearts are to belong to God. God. So this is not just a command about holding your tongue. It's about having a heart that loves God. Our heart and our attitude is to be for God. Also we see everything we make or produce is to be set apart for God. We see that in verses 29 and 30. Everything we have is a gift from God and belongs to God. The Old Testament law recognised that in that God's people offered a portion of it to God in acknowledgement of that. Here what's in mind is wine and grain and animals. The animals were given over on the eighth day, just as a male child was to be circumcised on the eighth day, dedicating them to God in some sense. Here the firstborn child belonged to God. The law gave provision for them to be redeemed by the parents so to be bought back from God. But the firstborn belonged to him. That's what we see here. It's like first fruits. Every good gift we have is from God. And it still acknowledges that in the New Testament. We give back to God a portion of what he gives to us, don't we? Our time, our money, our resources. But it's not to earn God's favour. That would be like trying to bribe someone with their own cash, wouldn't it? Since God has given us everything, sort of giving it back to him, well, that doesn't work unless you're a politician, but we won't go into that. You can't bribe people with their own money. You can't bribe God with his own gifts. We don't devote what we have as a, as a favour to God. God doesn't need our stuff. What it is is an act of devotion on our part. Recognising that it's all his anyway. So everything we have belongs to God. Everything we earn belongs to God. Everything we make belongs to God. It's there from Him and for Him, for His purposes. And it gets even bigger in verse 31. The whole of ourselves is to be set apart for God. Do you see that? You shall be consecrated to Me. That word consecrated is set apart for God alone. It's just the holiness word, as a verb, a doing word. We're to be set apart for him, holy to him, alone. It's the opposite of sacrificing to all those of the gods. God's people are to be set apart for just one, the Lord God Almighty. It's a huge statement, if you think about it, about what life is about. Consecrated to God, set apart for him. They were told that they would be a holy nation in chapter 19. But here God tells them as individuals to be set apart for him. So God doesn't just want our mouth; He doesn't want just our work or even our children. God wants us. God wants you. The whole of you. You're to be set apart for God alone. So everything we have Everything we are is to be set apart for God. It's like a massive crescendo here in the middle of the passage. You exist for God. You are his. This is your identity as his people. The really strange thing then is the application that comes from it in verse 31. It seems so mundane. Verse 31 again. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore... You shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Now, apart from the fact it seemingly got nothing to do with the laws around it, it actually has very little to do with the laws in Exodus. There are no other laws in Exodus about what you can and can't eat. They all come in Leviticus. I read all the commentaries I could get my hands on this week, trying to get my head around it. Some say it's for hygiene reasons. Some say it's because you couldn't drain all the blood out of it. uh, People would be suspicious. They should be suspicious of food provided by an animal. We don't want to repeat of uh, Eve and the serpent. But then wouldn't it be fruit? Wouldn't it be more laws about not eating fruit? None of those fit with the context either. The clue really is the instruction on what they're to do with it. They're to throw it to the dogs. Now the law, elsewhere it deals with this same thing. It repeats the command to avoid meat torn by animals, but nowhere else is there a command to throw it to the dogs. To throw something to the dogs is to treat it contemptibly. Jezebel, the sorceress queen of Israel, has her body left to the dogs to eat. You throw something worthless and contemptible, unholy to the dogs. So Matthew 7, do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs. I wonder whether there's almost something proverbial here, using that law in this place, giving a contrast. In other words, give yourself to God, leave the roadkill for the dogs. There's a hymn in in Gadsby's hymns that has this line. Come raise your thankful voice, you souls redeemed with blood. Leave earth and all its toys. And mix no more with mud. Why would God's precious sons and daughters. Content themselves playing with mud. Why would God's holy people live on roadkill. Why would they eat an animal's leftovers. When they're made in God's image. When we look at it that way. Do you see what it does. Why when God has set us apart as holy. Would we lower ourselves in that way. Not the lowering ourselves to help others, not abasing ourselves, but debasing ourselves. God has such wonderful blueprints for how to live the best of life. Yet so often we play with sin, we play with mud. God sets before us a feast, and yet we crave after roadkill. And that's the folly of sin, isn't it? Really? Really? that we chase after those things, and yet we all have that fully bound up in our hearts. James reminds us though that we should keep ourselves unstained from the world. Every part of our heart belongs to God and should be set apart for him. Everything we have belongs to God and should be set apart for him. Everything that we have, that belongs to us, should be set apart for him. And it shows itself in the way that we're willing to care And love the others. And that says Exodus, that says James, is true religion. But religion, in the terms of the way James uses it, that's the way we're to live out our faith because of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. One of the reasons that Christianity shouldn't exhibit all the failings of what our society calls religion is that it isn't one. The world has religion, we have Jesus Christ. He is our priest. He is our temple. He is our sacrifice. He is the one who kept and fulfilled the law. And he is the one who brings us into the presence of the Father. So in one sense, we shouldn't act like the religious people around us. But we should be those who live to glorify Jesus. How do we do that? We follow the principles laid down in his word. We leave the roadkill. And are sustained by Jesus, the bread of life. We turn aside from the religion of the day. And instead we love one another from a heart that's been renewed by Jesus. Well, we're going to remember Jesus' sacrifice in a few moments' time. But before we do, let's pray that God would help us to live lives that are set apart for him. The lives that we've been talking about. Let's pray. (laughs) Father God, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for the way that he exhibited all the things that we've been talking about. Father, thank you for his compassion. And most of all, thank you for his sacrifice. That means, Father, even all the ways that we failed in these areas, Father, thank you that his death pays for it all. But help us, Father, to live
1: lives dedicated to him. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.